Um, thank you, Bob, for that introduction. Good morning, everyone. Um, so as Bob said, I, um, I started here at the Center for Public Genomics, which is an um, NHGRI-funded center for excellence in ethical research at IGSB about five years ago after a conversation with Bob about my interest in learning more about um, ethical, legal, and social issues surrounding genetics and genomics. And um, this started, I had previously had both uh, doctoral and postdoctoral training in genetics and genomics and um, had increasingly grown interested in the unique challenges that the, the birth and advance of these technologies was <coughs> creating for how they would um, basically improve society, um, if you were to put it that way, health and society. Um, um, so uh, th that conversation led to a fellowship here for uh, two years, um, during which I began to study um, issues surrounding uh, proprietary and open source ways of doing science and genetics and genomics, and what were their consequences on research and innovation. And, um, and several projects in, I have followed in the years after that have been looking essentially at this theme of innovation in biotechnology, where you have uh, proprietary rights and also uh, concerns about um, access on one hand that results from proprietary protection of technologies, data, materials, etc. Um, today I would like to talk to you uh, about a, a body of work uh, which has continued, which is focused mostly on intellectual property and um, management of intellectual property and what it means for access in genetic and genomic diagnostics and innovation in that space. Um, um, so to give you a sense of what um, I'll try to touch upon in this talk today. Number three. Oh, here, yes. I'll do it. I'll do it. Here we go. Okay. Thanks. Thank you, Hunt. She's <laughs> taking care of that. We were forewarned. All right. Um, so, um, to give you a brief overview of what um, what are the things I will touch upon in this talk today, I would first like to uh, give you a sense of um, work I have completed um, both during my postdoctoral uh, fellowship here and the couple of years that followed after that on looking and looking at um, patenting and licensing and um, what their impact is on access to genetic tests in the U.S. Um, this work was done as part of a project that was commissioned by um, the Secretary's Advisory Committee of Genetics, Health and Society, which no longer exists, but um, resulted in informing a report that they uh, have published in uh, t April of 2010, um, uh, to, uh, sent to the Secretary of Health and Human Services about what would be the potential problems, what, are the, what is the evidence problems from patenting and licensing, licensing on access to clinical genetic testing in the U.S. Um, from that point, um, it, it was a natural transition for me to look at uh, um, work, uh, look at concerns about intellectual property in the space of genomic diagnosis, which is going more from single genes or small panels of genes to large sets of genes that are being analyzed simultaneously or patterns of gene expression profiling that are being analyzed simultaneously and then moving towards emerging technologies for doing whole genome sequencing, clinical whole genome sequencing. So the question was whether the intellectual property legacy that we have in the United States was going to create problems for the development of those new uh, genomic diagnostics and bring them into the service or marketplace. Um, after, the, by, um, after that, I will sort of summarize from what we have learned um, from what I have learned <laughs> from these, these, these uh, uh, studies so far um, about uh, not only uh, how the intellectual property and uh, proprietary uh, way of doing science can, in fact, impact innovation or access and or access, and what might be the most promising strategies to balance these two needs uh, for the progress of science and biotechnology 
and also to achieve a goal of equitable and broad access to products and services that emerge. Um, and then I would like to sort of shift my um, um, focus on things that I'm sort of looking forward in the future of flavor, what I might be interested in doing in the next few years, um, thinking about what, what constitutes access um, to genomic technologies. Well, how do we think about access and what is, what is the, what are the factors, systemic and institutional and national, international influence access to genomic technologies? And, um, and I'll give you a sense of some of the projects that I have initiated and beginning to look into doing the next couple of years. Okay, so um, I came from India where um, I experienced firsthand uh, the process of how to try to get healthcare to people who are in extremely resource poor settings. Uh, my mother was a doctor practicing oncology for a hospital where people, most, most of the patients lived in incomes of $2 or $1 a day. And it was a challenge to get the latest. Uh, <gasps> oh my God. <laughs> So sorry. Speaking, speaking of speaking of home, yeah. speaking of home <laughs> that was my mother. <laughs> She's going into surgery right now. <laughs> oh, speaking of technology <laughs> and, and home. Um, oh, I, I, I'm sorry. I just have to. Um, I'm, if you just give me a moment. I, this is very embarrassing. Sorry. Um, <laughs> yes, she does. <laughs> She knows you got a big job talk today. Do your double finger and then, then just do a quit. Fire Skype quit squad. There we go. Okay. <laughs> You're fine. Okay. You're fine. Wow. <laughs> See that? Let me move back yeah, to the slide. Bottom. Hit the bottom. There you go. Okay. You're I'm gonna right. Okay. <laughs> so um, I, I guess uh, growing up in India, I was fully aware that um, there are problems getting the best new health technologies to those who have who live in resource poor uh, settings, and um, <coughs> debates in biotechnology and intellectual property rights have often centered around these two themes, um, and so has scholarly work. Incentivizing innovation on one hand and maximizing the social benefit that these technologies and products and services can provide. Um, and uh, intellectual property protection and patenting as a way to stimulating economic growth and the production of new products and services that they, so that they become available in the market. And on the other hand, trying to achieve equitable access, so broad access to these products and services so that you have the maximum benefit on health and well-being of people. So, um, growing up in India, uh, which is famous for its genetic manufacturing industry, I was fully uh, aware of these debates around, particularly the very heated debates and public outcry um, that was not just in India, worldwide, about patent enforcement for HIV antiretroviral drugs. And often found myself during my postdoc and um, graduate training in heated discussions in water coolers <laughs> or in near water coolers about um, what are the problems of patent enforcement for antiretroviral drugs from the perspective of com uh, countries and people who have uh, very um, um, little money to spend on their health. Um, when I got here to Duke, um, I was very interested in studying a similar issue that was patenting and um, uh, protection, intellectual property right protection for uh, uh, DNA and uses of DNA in genetics and genomic, and genetics and genomic technologies. Um, empirical studies of DNA patenting uh, have been, which have been basically quantifying how many patents are there 
on genes and nucleotide sequences and how much of the human genome is covered by um, patents and intellectual property rights have produced a, a variety of results. Um, I'm going to just quickly summarize some of those findings. Um, DNA patents basically um, are patents that we say that claim nucleic acids and their uses or methods. And this would mean not just sequences of the DNA itself, but applications of the DNA, for example, in expression vectors, transgenic animals, methods for detecting DNA microarrays, platform technologies, et cetera, which use DNA. Um, uh, an algorithm that Bob Kuktigan actually helped generate, which has been analyzing and uh, digging into the U.S. patent database over uh, for data that has been publicly available electronically for the last 20 years, um, has been created, which is housed at the Georgetown University and is supported by our um, Center for Public Genomics grant. And the recent data from that say that there are 58,000 or so uh, granted U.S. patents which claim at least one claim on the use of DNA and I make it clear again, it doesn't necessarily mean claiming the DNA itself, but the use of the DNA, and there are um, 89,000 or so more pending patent applications in the U.S. alone, um, which would have similar structure in them. Um, um, other work done by uh, Michael Hopkins et al. and, and their group in Sussex, England, has shown, has focused in specifically on patents that have claims on DNA sequences, human DNA sequences, and they suggest, they, they, their data shows that there are about 15,603 patent families, and by patent families, these are groups of patents that have been filed in the United States and Europe and a couple other jurisdictions like Japan, Canada, et cetera, um, and they show that there are over 15,000 patent families that claim nucleic acid sequences of the human DNA specifically of human DNA sequences specifically, and they go on to show that if you look at the, how these patents are granted, that a considerably lot more are granted in the United States compared to Europe and Japan. And there are several reasons for why that may be so, and I can get, in, get to them later. Um, perhaps the study that has had most a public uh, um, sort of discussion is one that was um, uh, done by Jensen and Murray in 2005, published in Science, which actually which, uh, used a bioinformatic method, again, to analyze claims in the U.S. patent database and um, found that um, nearly 4,000 patents claim sequences of 4,382 genes out of 23,000 or so genes that were in the NCBI gene database at the time. And this is in, um, I think they looked at data until about 2002 or three at the time. And um, they, this led to this number that about 20% of the human genome is patented. Um, in the years since then, we know that this uh, number may not accurately represent what is truly patented in, in the human genome for several reasons, that several of these patents actually were never maintained. Um, there are methodological problems that several of these uh, patents that have been included in the data set actually do not claim human DNA but claim. Uh, protein or, um, or just have reference to a human DNA, which is not essentially a DNA sequence, but is not being actually claimed. So there are reasons why you would think that the, the number, 20% of the human genome which is patented, um, may not actually re accurately represent um, what is going on. However... Can I just ask, um, so yeah. I'm assuming that most of those are cDNA-related uh, patents or, or are there now, and if that's the case, are, is there any uptick in patent uh, applications that are actually using uh, full human genome sequence with the advent of the next-gen sequencing technology, or, is that, or are we still waiting for that? Um, I think that, uh, I think you're correct in saying that most of these uh, uh, um, studies looked at cDNA sequences being claimed. So, um, but are there, 
Are there patent applications that are looking at whole genome analysis of the human genome? I mean, I think that there are certainly patents and applications that are looking at methods for doing that. But so considering the fact that the human, human, uh, the whole genome, human draft human genome sequence is publicly available, I think sequent claims on sections of the human genome sequence would be much harder to uh, to receive now because of the problems of prior because they would not meet the prior art requirement of patent patentability. So I would say that that's hard, but um, I'd certainly say that there are definitely patents and applications on um, on how to analyze human genome sequences or combinations of combining human genome analysis, sequence analysis with biomarker analysis for outcomes. Does that answer your question? Yeah. yeah. Did you have a question, John? Um, so um, the number 20 percent of the human genome is patented has has often has also led to a very strong public debate about uh, DNA patenting and genetic diagnostics, particularly in the space of genetic diagnostics. And these pictures speak for themselves. But there has been very strong and polarized debate of whether patents should be granted to genes uh, on gene sequences and uh, genetic diagnostic methods in particular. Um, I will not necessarily go into what might be the moral and ethical uh, arguments that people have about whether you should patent genes or not, but certainly the space of genetic diagnostics presents some unique problems um, where patents may create um, problems with clinical practice, which uh, we wanted to study in more detail. And we were not the first to study it. Uh, there had been certainly a number of uh, groups, including academic uh, researchers, clinical researchers who had begun, and uh, bioethicists who were beginning to address the issue. There was um, a lot of survey data, a, a significant amount of survey data of clinical lab directors who were delivering genetic tests, suggesting that patents cost them to have uh, to stop offering certain genetic tests, um, to not bring certain genetic tests to market because of concerns of infringement. And there were very uh, public cases, um, such as the Canavan's disease case and certainly the breast cancer genes that were patented by Murray Genetics and continue to remain in, in public discourse um, uh, about uh, the, the negative effects of patents on clinical genetic testing services and that, the effect of that on, on uh, medical practice. Um, so the concerns typically uh, the, uh, that, uh, if I summarize them here, are about exclusive, giving exclusive rights for genetic testing or the patents that cover genetic testing to a single provider, meaning a single lab that will offer the test, are the following. Um, the first and most common concern is about the cost, the high prices of genetic testing, that because of loss of competition, this results in high prices which are maintained by pa patent monopoly. The second concern is about um, test quality, um, that the absence of a, another provider um, to, give a set, uh, to give a verification or a second opinion testing if there is some data that this provider pr produces that you can't understand or doesn't make sense creates a problem that you cannot actually give a good, uh, um, good medical advice to your patient because you do not have an option when there's only one person providing the test in the U.S. Um, um, clinical um, lab directors will also argue that if there is a single provider, um, they may not have a strong incentive um, to, uh, to participate in proficiency testing for the genetic testing, which is commonly practiced by genetic testing uh, laboratories. Um, then there are concerns about the comprehensiveness of other tests, which is to say that um, research in genetics is always moving forward. It's a moving target. What your test should compromise is often a moving target. There are common mutations that are often tested for, but then additional research and discovery produces information about other genetic mutations that should be included in these tests. And so um, a model where a single test provider has built a 
market base using a particular kind of test which includes a few or one, maybe one common gene, uh, may be outdated very soon. And so the concern that many lab directors had about uh, this kind of model was that the test would be no longer comprehensive and hence not clinically meaningful anymore. Um, and they also had concerns that this would reduce innovation in tests. Once a, a certain lab has a, a, a provider has established its marketplace, um, the incentive to innovate and use newer or cheaper methods in order to reduce test price is very little because they have captured the marketplace and there is no incentive to do that. Um, so these were the major, ma major concerns that are voiced in uh, debates about genetic testing. Yeah, you you could say that antitrust laws apply, but I do not know of a, a single case where anti it's ever been used. It's ever been used. Yeah, and I, I don't think there's an actually a single example of that. Um, there are also other things that people could uh, apply, such as uh, marching rights and provisions from the NIH, which say, um, especially for patents that might have government use rights, meaning the government has funded part of the research, which we would see that more than 50% of the patents that um, are covered genetic testing have a have indicate that in some form government funding has been used, mostly from the NIH. So one could even um, arguably make a case to the NIH that because public health is being affected, that the government should march in and um, allow for more competition, more providers to provide the test. That has also never been done for genetic testing and has rarely worked or there's never maybe worked. never worked um, in case of other products or biotechnology products or services, yeah. I guess isn't the premise of, of patents though, isn't the, the, the quid pro quo of a patent is that you, you divulge your invention and they give you one in the monopoly. So. Mm -hmm. That's self-contradictory to them. Self-contradictory to sue them for antitrust for exercising the rights that they That's correct. Um, the argument about, um, well, there's arguments about whether you should grant these patents or not, right? right? And then there's the argument about what is the purpose of the patent? Is the patent's purpose to entirely grant a monopoly, right? Or in, in exchange for divulging information, or is it, as the Constitution says, to promote the advance and the progress of the science and the arts, right? And so the, the, the debates um, often center around that perspective. Is granting a monopoly, and uh, those who would say that granting monopoly for genetic diagnostic testing is not promoting the progress of the science and the arts, and is not promoting the maximum social benefit that you get from the progress of the science and arts. So that is one argument. Um, that you could get here, but yeah, I agree with you. You're making a genetic exceptionalism argument as opposed to, you know, transistors or, or any electronic uh, invention or any other invention. I suppose we are, but, in, but to some extent, I think I would say that health stands out as more, genetics or health stands out as more of a problem um, than, uh, um, than transistors or electronics, because I think uh, the, the, the association of something that is associated with your health and what decisions you make about your health has a lot more uh, personal value and raises more intense objections than whether you can get it. The use of imaging for health yeah. diagnostics um, would, would throw your, that, you know, that inherent comparison out the window. It's a, but know, it, and it is a genetic exceptionalism argument that not just you are making, but that others make as if somehow well, it's, something it's, different. It's a health exception. It's a health exceptionalism. Because if you're, it partly has to do with whether you think the patent is necessary to get certain things done to promote 
the science and the art. And so in the case of the imaging, maybe no one would build that machine. The argument in the diagnostics is that scientists were discovering these, di these genes and diagnostics without a patent, so the patent was not necessary as an incentive. Yeah, so, so that's that, what the yeah, so it comes back, back to the point is the, 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 the tool that the government has decided to use is to confer monopoly rights for a limited period of time as an incentive to pull things through, and but it doesn't always work exactly the way, and it's a balancing thing, and the antitrust is always kind of there as a as a counterbalance, but it usually only gets invoked when things are way out of kilter, and the system notices that and something happens. So this is one of these areas where the debate is exactly about we've got this tool that's been used. Is it being properly used, used or and not? Really right. And and I think there are some reasons that the genetic diagnostics stand out. And um, you give the example of machines for imaging. And often large platform technologies, just machines for imaging, as expensive as they are, and if there is a monopoly on them, are often given out with licenses to the intellectual property that controls uh, that that covers them to to so to some providers. Right. I mean, we have like sequencing machines or diagnostic machines that are are, which are more like platform technologies. Um, it's very different when you have a service model, um, which is, in some of the cases, the sole providers, where they actually control the right to do the genetic test itself. And anybody else who does that genetic test is infringing on that patent. It's not like they're selling a machine or a PCR machine or a platform. In fact, there are enough examples where patents cover methods for genetic diagnostics. So um, I'd like to balance that opinion that saying that there are enough patents that cover diagnostic methods and platforms which are licensed out to several providers with reasonable licensing fees which are worked into the test prices. Um, the examples where one provider, and there are a few of them in the United States who have always created, uh, who have been source of uh, concern and outcry are when the, 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 is the only provider providing that genetic test and nobody else, no academic lab, no medical center can, can provide that exact test using methods that have been available in the public domain through research and science for a very, very long time. So I, I guess that's one of the reasons it becomes more of a reason for mm -hmm. public debate. It's, it seems to me some of the nature of the genetic exceptionalism here is the nature in which the patents have been conferred on the information Absolutely, and that's. Or the method, or just the process of associating a genetic mutation with a certain disease, a phenotype, and that is integral to the public debate and outcry, and even the challenge, the current challenge to patents, gene patents, is this is a law of nature, the association. You did not invent anything here. So th th that goes back to the arguments about whether these are subject to, to pa eligible for patent protection or not. So these themes are all tied into the genetic testing, uh, uh, probably even a lot more than drugs, for instance. There's been, um, you know, there has been concern about patenting of drugs, but it's uh, generally been sort of, like I said, from countries which have really resource-poor settings, and they have worry about whether they can provide these absolutely essential drug, uh, medicines or not for the health of their pub uh, public health. But in the United States, there has generally less outcry about drugs, and also because there's, you know, there are there are substitutes. Um, there's if there's only if you connect if you patent the very idea of being able to associate a mutation with a uh, with a condition or a phenotype, there are, and that is enforced against other providers. There is really no way to work around it. In drugs, you can engineer molecules that are different 
right? And for, for every uh, statin, there's another statin that comes about. So th these are so, sort of the differences between the diagnostic space and the drugs space within even the biotechnology realm, without even going into maybe looking at imaging or transistors or uh, other examples. Um, so yeah, so in 2006, the, the Secretary's Advisory Committee of Genetics, Health, and Society had already begun to look at this question because there had been some evidence that there was problems, but there was no systematic analysis of the issue whether patents and licensing actually caused an actual negative effect on clinical practice. Um, and they um, approached the Center for Public Genomics uh, at IGSP um, to ask us to provide um, help, help them uh, de develop the uh, evidence base for thinking about whether there had been systemically uh, documented negative effects of patents and licensing on the provision of clinically useful genetic tests in, in the U.S. And so in, in 2007, uh, I was part of a team at the Center for Public Genomics that started a, a number of case studies on effects of patenting and licensing on access to genetic testing in the U.S. And um, these case studies um, became an input in the report uh, to the report that came out in April 2010. Um, what we essentially did was we looked at um, examples of genetic tests that have been provided commonly in the United States where we could do natural experiments comparing their patenting and licensing status, that is, genes that had been patented or not patented, uh, genes that had been, genes and mutations that had been patented and licensed on only to one provider versus to several providers. So we could look at examples by comparing these cases um, to see what were the unique uh, problems, constraints, if any, that were encountered or were there no problems um, at all? Um, and so um, we did um, um, eight case studies looking at uh, 10 genetic uh, testing conditions in the United States where we have a, a plethora of uh, models for patenting and licensing, where there are patents, no patents, patents that have been licensed only to one provider, patents that have been broadly licensed to several genetic test providers, and patents that were never enforced at all, meaning they were never licensed, they were never used, they just simply reverted into the public domain because they were never maintained. Um, and um, we summarized these findings in um, um, this, uh, this paper, this commentary that Bob, me, and Misha and Christopher GSP wrote, um, which is about what were the particular problems that were encountered in specific cases where patent, that were related to patents and licensing and the way that intellectual property was managed specifically. Um, and what I'd like to do today is sort of summarize it in, in, in uh, sort of bring back the findings to this, um, again, back to the point of balancing innovation and access uh, theme that I, I started out with. And so um, what were some of the lessons we learned about innovation? Um, were the, because an argument is that patents incentivize innovation. Without that incentive, you will never have new genetic tests that come into market and into clinical service. And I think that it was, uh, we, we were fairly confident in saying that uh, we did not find any discernible effect that uh, patents um, actually provide a very strong incentive for pursuing genetic research or developing new genetic tests. Um, several genetic tests that are available in clinical services have no patents associated with them. Um, and, um, and, but on the contrary, diagnostic companies um, who have, especially startup companies whose business model revolves around getting a genetic test to market, um, will strongly, do strongly believe that patents are needed as incentive for investment and also for securing a return of investment based on market exclusivity. However, if you um, look at a majority of the genetic tests that are actually offered, you find that academic labs uh, who are, uh, or medical centers, or even um, reference laboratories who are able to provide these tests, bring these tests on well before the patent is actually granted. 
and right after the discovery and the publication of that discovery in uh, peer-reviewed papers. Often the patent owner and the licensing of that patent, if it is enforced in a way that is for an exclusive provider, uh, then results in clearing the market of more of these providers. So the patent itself does not provide the incentive, and the barrier to bringing a new genetic test is fairly low um, and does not require a patent incentive. We also found that patents, there was a lot of concerns about patents creating, in biotechnology creating what is known as the anti-commons, that is that there would be so much patented stuff that future innovation and research will be inhibited and you would have the tragedy of the anti-commons. And uh, scholarly work has been, um, uh, had, 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 had brought this issue up. And we found that in the genetic diagnostic space, uh, patents generally do not seem to inhibit basic research, meaning whether you have patents on genes and mutations or not, genetic discovery and additional research continues on. Um, however, uh, we would uh, consistently hear concerns raised by clinical researchers about chilling effects because of the distinction between clinical and basic research. And they would often raise the premise that uh, clinical research, which can be translated into products and services, may be subject to infringement as opposed to basic research, which is discovery, you know, looking at the biology of the gene, et cetera. And this concern that there is no official research exemption provision in the United States um, created uh, cases where there would be chilling effects and people would say we will not enter a certain space um, on their, based on their own decisions because of concern that they would be infringing. Um, on the other hand, we also find a lot of rational forbearance, meaning companies like Mirror Genetics do not go after basic researchers who are doing um, basic research. However, if you are providing a service as part of a research protocol, that would still be considered a service and they would consider um, asking you for a royalty for that. Um, Another concern that came out is that proprietary databases about genotype-phenotype associations, especially with companies like Myriad and Athena Diagnostics, who have been using their exclusive provider model to gather a lot of valuable information, is not always shared. And there is concern by clinical researchers that this could actually impede the actual understanding of the disease and hinder additional research, especially as we move towards whole genome sequencing and um, uh, uh, highly parallel genotyping. Um, also, um, whenever there were broad licensing of patents, there were usually a large number of providers um, with a number of varieties and methodologies for testing and also a, a, a range of prices. Um, so what did we learn about access? To think about access, um, I present to you one possible definition of what access is. And um, because the SACGH um, was very explicit in saying we want to understand patient and clinical access. Um, and so what would be, what constitute access is, uh, is a hard question, but um, let us just say that some of the elements of access should at least include availability of a service or product, affordability, and the ability to adopt that product or service quickly, right? So using that framework, um, what did we learn about access from these case studies? Well, let's look at availability. Um, we did find that when there was exclusive licensing of patents, there was reduced availability of the number of clinical providers, meaning the number of people providing the test. Uh, but this was not always pervasive, and sometimes this was intermittent, meaning it depended on the business model. There might be a certain owner of the patent or licensee who decided to be the only provider of the test, later on sold their business um, to a kit provider who then made many kits available and sub-licensed that patent to a number of providers. So the effect was intermittent sometimes. Um, and, but um, what we did find is that you could say that when there was a strongly enforced patent business model, such as the companies of Myriad and Athena Diagnostics, they were often the only provider of that genetic test. Um, this did not always translate into 
loss of patient access. Patient access is very hard to quantify. And often you could argue that if one provider disappeared, then the patient pool would be just sent to the single provider or the, pro the provider with the strong IP position. And so we could not um, uh, quantify problems, uh, uh, persistent negative effects of patents and sole provider models on patient access. However, we did get several anecdotal examples of patients who weren't able to get testing due to the fact that the provider, who was a single provider in this case, not having the appropriate payment arrangements with health payers. So this was kind of a, a complicated system where it had, and, and, and particularly unique to the US, where if you compare the UK where the, the, the tests are often given through the national health system, you do not have this issue as much. Um, the biggest concern always was price, and we were surprised to find, and, and perhaps uh, for good reason, that there was no evidence that the patented tests always consistently costed higher than unpatented tests. Um, we used several methodologies for looking at this. We looked at the, just the list price of the test, which gives you some sense of what the test might be, although there are <laughs> several um, pr uh, prices, or list prices are not often the exact price that is paid by the patient to the test, and there are uh, concerns about how payer codes are set up, et cetera, which could affect what price actually ends up, it's being, end, up, end up being paid. But we also did some analysis where we looked at the most expensive tests, which are often whole genome sequencing tests, I mean, whole gene sequencing tests, and then compared those tests by normalizing how many exons were being sequenced in each case. And we looked at cystic fibrosis, BRCA1, colorectal cancer genes, et cetera, and we looked at what might be the unit price of sequencing um, these genes. And some of these are patented, some of these are not patented, some of these are licensed exclusively, some of these are licensed non-exclusively and broadly, and again found no discernible effects about uh, uh, price. Um, one thing, however, to, to worry about in this is that there are, pricing is very difficult to figure out. There are overheads. Uh, methodology-related, uh, technique and methodology-related prices um, that, that are worked in into price genetic tests, and one could argue that if we found that Myriad's pricing is actually a little bit lower, it makes perfect sense because they have managed to accumulate all the volume for the genetic testing for BRCA1 and 2 genes. Um, importantly about adoption, what we did find is whether there was a patent or not, um, did not uh, influence the adoption of the test by the clinical providers or the patients themselves. Um, clinical need and utility often trumped that. And so if a patented test was available, patients would find a way to get the test if it was important and it was part of uh, them managing their health, and so would providers. Yeah. Did you study or find any link between clinical utility and the clinical trials and the data was gathered and whether or not the, the, the genetic test was patented? Well, the question is whether there were clinical trials and pat I, I guess you're saying that evidence of clinical utility drives adoption. Mm -hmm. And I, my question is, is, does patent status drive evidence of clinical utility? For the genetic testing cases, I think there was very few examples where we found that. N none of these actually went through a formal genomic health style yeah. doing clinical stuff. These were mostly these laboratory. Look, the, the paper comes out and start, people start doing the test. So it was very low threshold, very quick adoption. Um, and these are mostly laboratory-generated tests that we're looking at, LDTs, right? And they're not regulated by through a device model, et cetera, the really clinical trial. What I can say is clinical utility did, did influence whether a patent would be enforced or not. 
And that was certainly the case with her, hereditary hemochromatosis. Initially, there was a lot of interest in doing screening for everybody. And so the model that the, the original owners of the patents and the licensees built was very much about strongly using the IP to create a dominant position. As the clinical evidence began to appear that, that it would not be very useful to do population screening of um, mutations in the HFE gene, the model eventually <laughs> moved to the direction of, well, let's just sublicense it and create kits. And people, some people bought kits, others continued to develop. Provide lab, laboratory generated tests. So yeah, I could we did find examples of that, but uh, the, the, the answer to the question uh, no, because they, these were all mostly tests that are not regulated um, in any way. Well, there's clear regulation, but not the, the FDA regulation of, that requires prospective clinical trials. So um, based on these um, these case studies, we were able to find some some uh, general guiding principles. What might be the strategies that promoted uh, product development and bioavailability simultaneously? Um, one we did find is that in cases where there was a clear discussion about scientific and clinical considerations, um, as well as patient perspectives during the commercialization process, and this is exemplified by the cystic fibrosis case uh, where. CF testing, there are over 65 providers in the United States for a range of prices, methodologies, platform technologies, et cetera, that there were very distinct conversations that the, the technology transfer officers, the scientists, and in this case, the CF foundation had with each other about whether they would seek patents, how those patents would be licensed, et cetera, et cetera. What would be the way of managing the IP to, uh, to, uh, to provide access to their patient uh, patient um, uh, stakeholders, in this case, the, the, the patients who had uh, the CF Foundation. Um, uh, generally, non-exclusive licensing of patents seem to be the most effective in getting out maximum use of uh, that technology for genetic testing, including allowing more development of several test methodologies. Um, in addition, reserving rights for research when the institutional owners of the patents, and in this case, we are discussing mostly about academic universities because, like I said, nearly 70% of patents in the genetics uh, testing space are um, owned by uh, academic <laughs> universities and then licensed out maybe to companies. Um, finding that the, if the patent, the technology transfer office of the university or academic medical center reserved rights for research use and, uh, or humanitarian, and or humanitarian uses, then there was the ability to use the patent, uh, the, the genetic test, for different uh, purposes uh, without hindering access and allowing for product <laughs> development simultaneously. Um, so the patent, the, the, the legal saga of gene patents continues, and I will not get into a lot of it because um, Bob has talked about it a lot. And let's just say that it's a still evolving situation. They, uh, just as the, just as this, the SACGHS report was being um, being worked on, um, the Public Patent Foundation and the ACLU um, sued Myriad Genetics and then and the University of Utah at the time, um, s uh, challenging the validity of patents uh, on the BRCA1 and 2 sequences. Um, in March 2010, a federal judge of the district, the New York district, um, uh, delivered a, what was considered a bombshell judgment that um, that patents on genes are uh, genes and genetic DNA sequences are actually invalid because it is actually the information that is being patented and not so much as the isolated DNA, which is the argument that was made by Myriad. Um, the, the court, as, as was expected, this judgment was then appealed in the Federal Circuit, the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, which takes on patent cases. And um, very interestingly, the, the United States Department of Justice, for the first time, sent in an amicus brief, which is a, um, a, a, 
uh, a brief to the court support, not necessarily in favor of any party, but indicating their position that they thought that patents, uh, genes, uh, sequences should not be, naturally occurring gene sequences should not be eligible for patent protection. Um, and then most recently, the three-panel ju uh, uh, jury of the Federal Court of Appeals um, upheld that the patents on gene sequences, because they are isolated DNA and these are fundamentally different from those existing in nature, is valid. So we expect this, this, this is being appealed again back to the federal circuit by both parties, that is the ACLU um, and Mirror Genetics, and we expect maybe this will go up all the way to the Supreme Court. So it's going to be an evolving legal situation about whether patents are actually, uh, on gene sequences are actually eligible for protection. What was interesting from the perspective of technologies for doing um, um, genomic diagnostics and genotyping is that both the federal court, uh, the court, federal court in New York and the federal circuit court uh, of appeals held that pet patents on method patents, patents on methods which are pure associations between a genotype and a phenotype are not valid for patent protection because these are laws of nature. And this is not being contested in the appeals, but this is important if you think about genetic diagnostics because ma ma many studies show that often these methods are what are more difficult to invent around or to work around because you have broadly covered every possible way of associating a certain genotype or genotypes with certain disease states or phenotypes or outcomes in the end. Um, so. Um, uh, the first set of patents begins to expire in 2014, and then they go on till 2018. Um, so um, just as we were sending in the report, the report was being sent in for public comment, et cetera. Um, the public comments and our own thinking had become very clear that the, the, the landscape of, geno of genetic diagnostics is changing dramatically. Um, changes in technology, availability of low-cost gen uh, uh, genome sequencing, et cetera, are dramatically changing the landscape of how genetic testing will be done. And as some of our informants in the interview said that, that genetic testing will become obsolete and it will be genomic testing and it will be um, highly high-throughput testing of biomarkers, gene expression profiles, um, genotypes, et cetera, simultaneously. And this is just an image of the landscape of uh, what is out there now of, of services and uh, test providers looking at gene expression profiles, genotyping, um, looking at subsets of genotypes, et cetera, um, to inform a very, lots of decision making in uh, medical practice. Um, in the same time, um, there were uh, scholarly works saying, well, this is the end of DNA patenting, and patenting of DNA has come to an end. We have nothing to worry about. And as we see from this trend, and if you could focus between 2007 to 2010, um, there has still been a large number of US granted patents that claim uses of DNA. These may not necessarily be patents on DNA sequences itself, but it is certainly technologies, platforms, methods, et cetera, of using DNA, which are pertinent to the genomic diagnostic space. And the number of applications has continued to rise. Um, maybe a lot of these patent claims will not be granted with evolving case law, what we hear from the Supreme Court, what we hear about um, uh, pending cases about uh, uh, method patents uh, and other granted uh, decisions that have been already sent down about method patents, et cetera. But nevertheless, people still seek patents on uses of DNA and um, especially in, uh, for diagnostic purposes. So um, this raised the possibility that uh, n not, not just us, but um, several other people, including practitioners, companies, et cetera, in the field were raising that this legacy of intellectual property is going to create problems. We're going to have fragmented IP ownership on genes and sequences and methods, which could lead to patent thickets. 
And if we have to do massively parallel genotyping, you have to aggregate all this IP, and this is going to create huge transaction costs due to multiple licenses, et cetera, and it will become formidably expensive to produce new products and bring them to market. And then there was also concern that those who already had patents on very important methods or very important gene sequences and were dominant already in the field um, would not play because they would try to have a business model that involved enforcing that intellectual property and so aggregating patents and uh, intellectual property necessary to assemble these um, um, bigger uh, genomic diagnostics was going to become very difficult. On the other hand, there was reason for optimism from, uh, um, from stakeholders, which is that Emerging technologies such as new sequencing technologies, which do not, for instance, use PCR or amplification, will allow you to work around a lot of these method patents. Um, that, that, there was, that there had not been so much patent litigation in the past about genetic diagnostics. Um, this is work that was published by Chris Holman, um, which, uh, which um, um, quantified the amount of patent litigation for gene patents in the diagnostic space and found that it had been only five cases, all of which had been settled before they went to trial. Um, but it has to be taken with some caution because just because there is not litigation does not mean um, there are no increased transaction costs or there's no increased costs of workarounds in order to avoid infringement. So there are costs to the systems that come. Litigation is not the only, uh, only cost. On the other hand, the threshold to litigation is also so high that in many cases people deter from entering into a particular space because they fear they would not be able to bear the cost of uh, suing somebody or uh, facing a patent challenge. Um, so um, based on uh, these um, um, ideas, we submitted a grant to the NIH for a pilot uh, project to look at whether there were intellectual property challenges for development of genomic diagnostics, and specifically looking at uh, diagnostics that involve uh, massive parallel genotyping and gene expression profiling, putting together profiles of you know, hundreds of genes together, and um, uh, which, uh, for which I'm the principal investigator, and Bob uh, Kupdig and Ardi Rai at the School of Law um, are co-investigators. And um, the, the, the main objective of this project was to actually address whether there are patent tickets, the, this concern about patent tickets. How, what was the experience with patent tickets? Had there been examples of tickets being encountered? and whether that had actually inhibited the development of new products and uh, diagnostics, and also um, whether uh, there were how university, particularly university norms and licensing practices, and even policies of other um, players such as companies um, could facilitate the commercialization and the uh, dissemination availability of these diagnostics. And also to look at several proposed mechanisms for managing intellectual property that had been uh, put out by scholars such as patent pools, clearing houses, et cetera, uh, whether these would actually facilitate uh, uh, um, dealing with the patent ticket problems um, or, or, or not. Um, so um, very briefly, the, we used a methodology uh, similar to what we had done before, developed for our case studies, which was to create patent landscapes for specific diagnostics that we chose that had entered the market, where, we, where there was a considerable amount of genes or intellectual, possibly intellectual property associated with them that we would have to identify. Um, we looked at licensing information whenever it was available to see how those patents and those intellectual property had been managed and used. And then we, in, uh, we have interviewed um, several key informants, researchers, genetic testing lab laboratories, companies who are developing new genomic diagnostics, their business development specialists, and legal scholars um, about uh, what is the, whether there is a real problem with patent tickets and what might be the ways to handle it. Um, so. Um, I'm going to move on and just give you a quick example of um, 
one of the particular tests that we looked at was pharmacogenetic testing, and um, one of the examples, and we tried to, we have created a pattern landscape for several pharmaco pharmacogenetic tests, and here's a summary of some of that data. And uh, just, just to give you an example, for one particular type of test, this is warfarin sensitivity testing, and you can see that there, there are a number of patents, and, um, and as you can see from the previous um, slide, over uh, nearly 46 pending patent applications about which claim uses of VCOR1C mutations and CYP2C9 mutations for uh, uh, warfarin sensitivity um, testing and dosing. Um, so um, then we've also added on to that by speaking with some of the universities involved um, who have uh, these patents and figured out how they have done their licensing. And interestingly, in this case, we do find that a broad non-exclusive licensing strategy was adopted by the universities um, because of the concern that this is a, an important uh, test and should be made as widely, uh, uh, widely available and that exclusive licensing may not uh, would prevent the, the development of a comprehensive test in, in, in the future if more information and, and discovery uh, came in. We also um, uh, have uh, I've also summarized for you some of the perspectives from the key informants. Uh, we've done uh, nearly a 20, 20 interviews so far with um, stakeholders and informants in different uh, spaces, like I said, research, science, technology development, companies, et cetera. And um, I think the most important information is that they have not encountered pa pa patent tickets um, to date. So uh, the presence of patents has not inhibited them from bringing on a new service or a test. But they still remain uh, concerned that it will emerge. Um, they are concerned about multiple royalty payments, example, for a gene sequence, a diagnostic method, a platform technology, et cetera, adding costs. Not necessarily that there are many genes that they would have to, uh, or mutations that they would have to pay licenses for, for those patents, but that the costs will add up that from adding licenses to the method, the platform, the biomarker, et cetera, ultimately translating into costs for um, the patient. Um, or the payer. Um, and then, most importantly, I think what we find out is that they, um, the, the perspective is that if there is a patent ticket, it's a formidable task to identify. And one of the informants, um, Gary Cohen from Foundation Medicine, actually has given examples of what the costs would be, lawyer costs would be, and the hours of lawyer hours that you would have to spend in order for them to find out if there was a real, to do a complete what is known as freedom to operate analysis, to find out if they would actually have a patent ticket problem with a 200 gene test. Um, a gene mutation panel that they are developing for cancer, uh, cancer diagnosis. And, and, and the costs are quite formidable. Um, so how does one handle this? In most cases, by ignoring <laughs> the potential of a patent ticket. And, uh, and going ahead, because again, clinical need and utility trump um, whether you have patents or not to bring a new product or service. Um, and there's also belief that there will be rational forbearance, that it will be, it will be ridiculous for several patent owners to come and sue them and, and put together, ask them to pay royalty fees for a single mutations in a 200 gene panel, also because how much royalty could you possibly get if you had a 200 gene panel or a 1,000 gene panel and you were asking royalty for one mutation that may or may not be detected in your test, may not. So there are some uh, very practical uh, perspectives about whether why this should not be a pro this shouldn't be a problem. Um, so the, again, this this concern, this this belief that they're old, from a very practical perspective, these older business models are not going to be tenable, and that there will be rational forbearance, meaning people will not enforce the intellectual property right. But um, although several mechanisms have been proposed for pooling intellectual property, and certainly there has been movement in that front, um, informants were really equivocal about whether these proposed solutions would actually work in the genetic diagnostic space because of the differences between genetic diagnostics and, say, um, MP3 players, where you have to 
put together lots of standards through a pool in order to actually produce an MP3 player. Um, and um, we also found that several strategies have been proactively taken already by potential uh, uh, test developers, and there are a few companies, biotech startups in this, that have been represented, um, which uh, in include one, active engagement. Here they actually either contact the patent holders in advance, um, or they invite the patent holders to enter negotiations by publicly listing a royalty sharing policy. Navigenics, for instance, has done that. It's not clear how many times uh, Navigenics has been contacted for royalties, but they have said that this is the cap royalty they're willing to pay, and please, if you have a patent, come to us, we can negotiate something. Uh, Foundation Medicine is taking the same approach, that they would put their list of tests once they have uh, passed all the, the regulatory steps and ask, invent, ask patent holders to come and talk with them. Um, there are others who are avoiding, meaning test developers who are very clear. Um, these are usually academic medical laboratories who are doing things like comparative uh, building back arrays to look at um, uh, chromosomal defects in, uh, uh, in, in neonates, for example. Um, so the, in these cases, these are big academic medical centers who, who have to assemble large back arrays. And they are clearly avoiding certain uh, mutations or certain gene areas that they will report out on in response to uh, when they, after they've done the test because they are worried that patent holders who already have a dominant position and have enforced their IP in the past will come after them. Um, and there are others, um, mostly from the academic medical center labs, uh, who are clearly infringing patents very openly because they anticipate patent enforcement or <laughs> rational forbearance. And if they do think that there will be patent enforcements, they are very happy to go into a suit because they think that the current changing legal environment make a lot of these patents extremely weak in challenge and that this would be very bad PR for companies as well. And so they are pretty much ready for the fight. So these are the three strategies that we find among our um, informants. Um, and then I'd like to add that this is a very dynamic scenario, that there is a changing legal environment for cases, including the BRCA1 case that I talked about. They're very interesting. So a lot of the discussion has been, how does this matter for whole clinical whole genome sequencing, right? Uh, this was raised even by the judges in the BRCA1 case that, well, are we going to have patent problems for clinical whole genome sequencing? And I'd like to suggest that the dynamic scenario, legal and business model-wise, and scientific evidence actually may have create room for um, more optimism than, 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 than some may portray. And um, from the business model perspective, um, certainly the models that people are considering for whole genome sequencing include things like outsourcing. Uh, where the sequencing is done by one entity, usually uh, maybe outside the country, the interpretation is done by software companies, and then there are products that are developed that involve integrating the information together to help the clinician. And so in this case, it produces an example of split infringement. Who is actually infringing these patents, and who should be sued? And what about if you go do the sequencing in the Cayman Islands or in Estonia, where there are no patents granted? So, so these are actual models that people are considering, and some have even developed uh, genetic testing models for dogs uh, using uh, this model of setting up a lab in the Cayman Islands um, and sending the information to owners so you're not infringing a U.S. patent. Um, there are other examples, uh, other reasons why um, uh, the scenario could change in, in either one direction, which is how these, um, whether there will be regulation, uh, what kind of regulation more clinical whole genome sequencing um, uh, face and whether it will be the IVDMIA model or some other model and that that could influence whether patents become important 
as incentivizing innovation and means of securing uh, investment, a return of investment. And there's also evolving scientific evidence about the clinical utility of tests and how that can determine whether patents are enforced or, or not, or whether there is a spontaneous uh, effort to um, either by users, rights users, or right owners to create pools of the intellectual property that it can be used in a meaningful way, both for getting um, just, just dividends back to the intellectual property owners and for promoting widely accessible products and services. So, um, so that brings me to the question that I have been um, thinking about and like to explore in the next few um, years, which is what is access and what is access to emerging ge genomic technologies? And I would like to present this quote to you that I, I find very interesting, which is um, that access is not an off and on switch. It is, a, a, it, is not, it is not a dichotomous condition. It's a continuous condition of different degrees. And, and that there are so many factors that would actually influence how a product becomes accessible. Certainly, uh, availability, affordability, adoption are factors. But I would say in the genomic space that there might be other factors, um, the flexibility of the product that also affect whether it is accessible or not. Um, from, our, from the research that I have had the opportunity to do in the last few years and learn more about and develop a more nuanced understanding of how genetic products, technologies, diagnostics come into the market, enter clinical practice, I would say this is not an exhaustive list, but several factors um, from how the research is designed, who the stakeholders are, how it is funded, uh, what are the institutional collaborators and their interests, and whether you seek IP protection or not, how that proprietary data and IP is managed, and how you choose to commercialize it, um, and whether you consider access as an element of the product or the service and end quality of the product or service, and then what is the business model of the commercialization partner, um, all influence whether something is accessible or not. And this is by nature a complex problem requiring the, the, the kind of interdisciplinary environment that you have a Duke to study, which is you have to think about it from the health policy perspective, the health economy perspective, from a business model perspective, understanding the business fit, and from the legal perspective, um, along with the, sci the science that underlies um, these genomic um, uh, discoveries and technologies. So, um, in the immediate future, um, I would like to um, I, I would like to take what I have learned and ha and, and use that to explore some interesting questions that have come up to me in, in my thinking about access. And two avenues that I'm actively exploring are, one is um, whether IP and commercialization models uh, will influence access to affordable non-invasive prenatal diagnostics, genetic diagnostics. There's been a lot of development um, in technolo technology-wise in this non-invasive prenatal diagnostic space. and um, several uh, uh, groups who are researching um, how to do non-invasive prenatal diagnostics have moved forward to show that you can even do a whole genome sequence. You can find the whole fetal genome in maternal plasma, and that this, this is creating a um, lot of interest uh, from, and also concern from an ethical perspective. Uh, but on, on the, from the clinical practice perspective, for those who, who would clinically need non-invasive prenatal diagnostics, and it is an important test to bring um, to service in the market, and as one person argued that it's an ethical imperative to bring it for those who need it because there are concerns about invasive prenatal diagnostics that have uh, prevented widespread use of um, those tests, um, including the, the, the risk of miscarriage, the cost of the prenatal diagnostic itself, and whether it is a, it, it's, it, it's easily accessible, meaning it's inconvenient for some uh, women to get CVS or or amniocentesis done in order to uh, get a, an, an answer, which will help them make important decisions about reproductive planning and also managing the life of the child that will be born. 
right? So, um, so the non-invasive prenatal diagnostic technologies are potentially extremely important, and they are different in the sense that we have genetic tests for conditions like BRCA1, which affect an important patient population, but a non-invasive prenatal diagnostic has a much larger patient population that, that, that would use it and need it um, if, uh, if clinically useful and, and, and valid. And the second set of questions that I'm interested in, in is looking at especially DNA diagnostics for use in low-resource settings, um, such as, you know, for diseases that disproportionately affect the low- and middle-income countries of the world. And um, there's a lot of research that is being done on uh, infectious agents, the, the, the host, host, host genomes and the, the, the genomes of the infectious agents, whether it's HIV, malaria, et cetera, which could translate into extremely important point-of-care diagnostics in, um, that need to be delivered in very low-resource settings. So thinking through about what would be the kinds of commercialization plans that you use, how intellectual property, if it is there, is managed in the context of these diagnoses is extremely important um, because of the potential for widespread benefit and um, um, uh, uh, improvement of health um, if widely accessible. Um, so um, so in, in, the, in the context of prenatal diagnostics, it is very clear that an IP position is already apparent. Um, important patterns which cover very broad methods for doing prenatal diagnosis have already been granted and licensed exclusively to companies. And uh, from, I won't get into it, I can talk about it a little bit after, afterwards, but um, it seems like there are already several stakeholders with IP positions who are, who are um, poising for a battle. And the question is whether these commercialization models that they use will adapt and evolve over time. Will they lead to a place where this diagnostic is clinically valid and useful, is widely accessible, or will we have some of the problems that the past have, have created, such as the myriad model of um, having, being a single provider of a prenatal diagnostic test? Um, and finally, um, I would like to leave with sort of an optimistic view that, that it is possible to balance um, uh, the needs of innovation and the needs of uh, improving access, and that you can use intellectual property and using these examples where um, there is patent protection and there is exclusive licenses, actually, there are interesting business models that have been used in both these cases to provide very cheap and highly accessible diagnostics for the developing world. Um, and so I would like to suggest that uh, it is possible to use as a patent, as a very fine tool to craft a jewel or use it as a hammer. And it is, it is imperative that um, scholars and people like myself actually understand the process with, uh, with nuance and, and detail so we could actually inform debates and discussions about how we could bring new products and services um, to the market and make them widely accessible. I know I'm already running over time, so I'm, I'm going to stop right here. And um, I'm, I'm happy to take questions, but I'd like to thank um, NHGRI for the RO3 grant, the Center for Public Genomics um, that funded uh, the fellowship I started out with five years ago and, and continuing research that I have done. Um, I'd like to thank Bob, Lauren Dame, Artie Rye, members of GELP, all members past and present of GELP, who have um, helped me think and learn a lot uh, about an issue. Don't forget your mom. <laughs> and yes, <laughs> and my mom, <laughs> who called on Skype. So thank you very much, and um, I'm open to questions now. So um, let me break the ice just a little bit, uh, Shuba, by asking you, how are you thinking about what, on this last thing that you talked about, mm -hmm. Which cases are you thinking of, of focusing on to get at this very large question of highly 
um, products that are cheap enough that they could be very broadly distributed and using IP in that domain. Do you have some examples that you're thinking of focusing on? Well, I, I am starting thinking that I did uh, bring up the example of the CARE HPV test for good reason. Um, this is a test which is a, 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 a genotyping test, actually. It, uh, it tests for 14 uh, high-risk HPV strain, um, strains of HPV, which are associated with high risk for cervical cancer. And the test was uh, started, the research started at a university in, in the UK and uh, was commercialized with a partner, Kyogen, uh, with both the Gates Foundation and PATH actually taking on a lot of the, uh, the funding and also the, the, the um, I would say, the, the impetus for testing it in, in the field and clinical trials. And uh, the product is now uh, being, uh, has, has been used at least for demonstration trials at a cost of uh, one to two dollars, which is pretty impressive. And, um, and then um, it, it's, it's be the, it is going to be the first diagnostic, if I understand, that, uh, ha that they are asking uh, the WHO to provide pre-qualification um, uh, pre for. Um, and the WHO, as you know, has uh, often generated a, a, a list of essential medicines and has long been thinking about generating a list of essential diagnostics for, for low- and middle-income countries. And so this, um, uh, this uh, the interesting part is that this, this product that Kaijin's developed will, will not enter the U.S. market or the Europe market or the OECD, the developed country market at all. Um, they, and they, they have patents for this technology in the US and Europe, et cetera, but the way they're developing it and the, the pricing of this product for the developing world is, is uh, very focused on uh, looking at accessibility. So I'd like to understand it from both the academic researchers' perspective and the company perspective. Can it replace the pap smear? Is that the whole idea? Well, actually, the, there is a, in fact, there is enough papers now saying that the pap smear just should not be done in developing countries. Uh, uh, root, for as a screening device, because there are just in low resource settings, there are several constraints and barriers to the uptake of the pap smear. Well, first of all, the infrastructure doesn't exist in most of the places. There are people lost to follow up. Um, there, there are um, societal stigma issues associated with women having a, a pap smear. And um, there, there are other methods uh, also that are used as a visual um, inspection using acetic acid, and there are um, other sort of uh, cytology-based methods, and several DNA-based tests um, that are available also in the market here in the U.S. But there the, are uh, papers that have recently come out in Lancet, I think, that show that even a single DNA screen test um, significantly reduces the incidence of um, you know, two lesions, et cetera, that you will see in, in, in patients doing follow-up by using large, large, large clinical trials. So um, there, certainly it, it's... Um, I, I find this interesting, but this is an example of a genomic technology actually going straight first into the developing world setting because it actually meets a, a very clear need there. And sort of, um, so it, it, in my mind, I find it interesting because we always think of technologies diffusing from the first world or developed world and then being adapted. But here's an example where the actual development of the test itself has been clearly with that, um, um, with that uh, uh, market in mind. So how it will be funded is still interesting, but they're pricing it very low, so there might be, you know, there will be government funding, probably funding through charitable donations um, and philanthropies that will allow health systems and governments to pick it up. But uh, what I found very interesting is that, for instance, Rwanda just struck a deal with Merck and Kyogen simultaneously. 
It's the first country to strike a deal about HPV vaccination and screening simultaneously. And they've negotiated really, really low prices for their vaccine and the care HPV test uh, so that they would have comprehensive screening and vaccination in their country. And I don't know if it has to do with the fact that a lot All of the ministry. <laughs> yeah. Alex. Mm-hmm. Was, was that before or around the time studies started coming out about the utility of orphan sensitivity gene typing? Did any of those uh, people you talked to make reference to, you know, and if this study shows X, then we're going to do Y? Or well, the researchers that in this case did not have very much to say about why they chose a certain mode of patenting or um, licensing. I think the, the most, whether, whether there was discussion about clinical utility, et cetera, whether that translated into decisions, I, I guess that's what you're trying to get at. Whether the evidence base was translating into decisions about how the intellectual property would be managed, is that, uh, yeah. The, uh, no, th there was no evidence of that, at least in the interviews I've conducted with the researchers at UNC and U U UW. Um, but the technology transfer officers were more informative about what they made their decisions on. And they seemed to make their decisions not necessarily about the scientific evidence that surrounded, uh, in this case, uh, you know, warfarin sensitivity testing, but with their prior experience with other diagnostic spaces and also relying heavily on uh, guidelines that the NIH had put out about how to license genetic inventions. It's, it was um, a more, I would say, more... Uh, it was a very, it was a sophisticated understanding of the, di the industry in the diagnostic space. And these are people who have done exclusive licenses and non-exclusive licensing. And it has also become very clear to me that, again, the, the, the buckets of exclusive and non-exclusive licensing do not always end up with outcomes that you think are positive and negative. Um, again, because, so uh, talking to technology transfer prof professionals actually is illuminating to me in some ways because they, they, they really have an understanding of, um, how the, mar the, the market works. And so they, their thinking was more about um, how to maximize the potential use of this intellectual property that you get non-exclusive licensing for. It wasn't necessarily driven by clinical, understanding clinical utility at this point. Does that sort of answer it? Yeah. So um, I'm just curious as to the way that the, the patents are written for um, things like DRCA1 and DRCA2, do they anticipate um, novel, uncover novel mutations that have yet to be discovered. Because um, I'm thinking about your second interest. So as, as the genomes from developing countries are sequenced, mm -hmm. novel associations that have not been discovered in European, Caucasian, Americans yes. will emerge. And will those um, claims, will those be covered by the claims of the existing patents, or will they be free? Some of them. Some of them will be. Some of them will be. Well, it also depends on... Let me answer it in two ways. Yes, depending on how broad the claims are, some of these claims are what we call prospective, meaning they are mining into future discoveries by saying associations of even a single nucleotide variation in the sequence of blah, 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 associated with at least this much loss of activity of the protein, if there is a protein, or associated with so-and-so phenotype are claimed. And one would argue that these very broad claims are extremely susceptible to challenge 
also are probably invalid right now if challenged because of the court case of Bilski, where say a pure association, which is um, not in any way supported by a man-made intervention of some sort, is, is or a transformation of some sort is, is a law of nature and hence patent eligible under Section 101. So those are two reasons why that could happen. But on the other part, point of this is if you find things that are in other uh, populations um, that might be claimed prospectively sort of in this sort of future mining way by existing patents that say decode has or, or mirror genetics has, um, most of these patents are actually not filed and maintained in developing countries because in the past, it was considered there's not enough of a market for doing any sort of diagnostic testing or even product development there. So use in those countries might actually be unfettered. This is an opportunity to, for uh, innovation and, and entrepreneurship in those, in those companies, that were, in those countries, I would argue, uh, because those patents are actually not filed and granted there. Well, I want to thank everybody for coming. And thank you. Thank you, Shuba. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, everyone.